Yeah, so good morning, everyone. Um, you're very welcome to this morning's HCI webinar. My name is Lisa McGrain. I'm a best practice specialist at HCI. And this morning, I'm joined also by Una Gilvari, the CTO at HCI. Um, so this morning's webinar is in relation to a summary that we completed of recent HICWA inspection reports. Um, we have done a number of these webinars previously. We take a number of recently published HICWA inspection reports and do some trending and analysis and look at some of the key findings that are coming up. And hopefully this will provide us with some learning that we can use going forward. Um, so just before we get into the analysis, I'm just going to hand over to Una, who's just going to go through a few things about what's new at the moment. Okay, super. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, I have to get my speak in early here. We are very, very busy at the moment in best practice. Um, we uh, There really has been a massive onslaught of new information coming out, both from HICWA and from the HSC. And I just wanted to just give you a few flash slides um, to give you a heads up on a few of these. Now, I'm going back a little bit for this one. This is the, the SI. Uh, 628 and this this that's the new uh, legislation that has brought been brought out in that relates directly really to complaints and some of the changes um, that are, have been incorporated this was back in December now when this was uh, was released and really what that was doing was restructuring the complaint requirements uh, in line with the your service your say and looking for that four stage process about having your point of contact and your local re resolution your formal investigation process be managed by the complaint officer and then that internal review um, which must be provided by an independent review officer that's all of the internal work and then uh, should that not be successful looking at that stage for external review a lot of work gone into this in our own policy and procedure development the templates that we work on took a little bit of time to tease it out but one of the main drivers of the changes on this related to the requirement um, and, and putting it into legislation looking for that independent advocacy process. Now the reason why I wanted to bring that up specifically and, and you know it's not a massive part of this um, SI uh, 628 but it is leading on to all of the changes that are coming down the line. So from that as I said, that independent advocacy is certainly gaining ground. And just um, on the 4th of April, HICWA released the fund Fundamentals of Advocacy set of resources. I'm sure you've come across them by now. And as part of that, there's an online learning course, which is about an hour. Um, there's a booklet and an educational video. And again, this is pushing um, the requirement and, and the, the additional focus that will be on advocacy and the provision of advocacy within the nursing homes um, and, and the wider health and social care services. So it looks at the different types of advocacy and particularly that booklet is quite short, but there is a lot more in that online learning course. And it talks about the different types of advocacy, both internal and external and what they expect to see when they talk about advocacy. And some of the things here that you'll see that is quite relevant in relation to self-advocacy and supporting self-advocacy um sage you you'll, you'll have come across before but the dss that decision support service and i'm going to talk about those in a, in a couple of minutes because there was the launch of the decision support service just yesterday but in relation to the other types of advocacy they're looking for group advocacy um, specifically, again, linking back to that regulation, the patient complaints advocacy, and that's the patient um, advocacy service that's going to be taking that role on uh, by supporting um, 
individuals um, in receipt of care, both from it was within the public remit, but now they're taking on people in the in the pub in the private nursing homes to support them in implementing complaints. They also talk about peer advocacy, citizen advocacy, and obviously legal advocacy. But let's just talk about the decision support service and. So just yesterday, the launch of that decision support service. So that is provided for under the Assisted uh, Decision Making Capacity Act, which has been trundling along for, for quite a long period of time now. But the, the and, and the launch, I suppose, of the decision support service to support it um, has been um, has the can was kicked down the line a number of times, but it was officially launched yesterday and it aims to support adults who may have difficulties with decision making and those making advanced care directives. I was speaking to a friend of mine in the legal remit and she said there's a lot of activity, um, a lot of people trying to get their head around what this is going to actually mean. Um, uh, in, in the broader sense, the changes in relation to the ward of court and all of that, but it's definitely going to have a significant impact on the nursing homes also. So that is certainly something that we need to keep an eye on and watch very carefully. It's going to have an impact on our consent processes that we have internally, our legal access, and obviously, again, linking with advocacy within the residential home. So a lot of activity going on there. Uh, another document that has just come out, and, uh, and again, best, best practice uh, within HCI are working hard to try and incorporate that into our templates, is the changes in relation to the new guidance for restrictive pact practice. So what is this all about? Well, surprise, surprise, there's thematic inspections coming down the line from June uh, in relation to restrictive practice. So from that, they provide assessment judgment framework to support um, uh, to support its implementation. They have the self-assessment questionnaire, which is going to have to need to be completed. And they've also given us a quality improvement plan. You're not required to use that template for the quality improvement plan. You can use something else, but you have to use something. Um, so obviously that focus is on quality improvement and the area of restrictive practice and obviously minimizing it to the greatest extent possible. But again, involving the residents and ensuring that advocacy is made available to them in line with that. So they're looking to promote that care environment free of restrictive practice or at a minimum reducing or uh, reducing their use within the service. Okay, um, there's a couple of new um, COVID related guidance that have come through as well uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, you're all pretty okay, I'm sure with the, the sources for all of these, but these are new changes that are coming through. And we would certainly advise you to take some time and have a look at them. Again, we're incorporating them into our templates and requirements. One thing that came to note, the final thing I'll talk about in relation to what's new, uh, the HSE risk management framework has been updated. That Our risk management framework uh, from HSE was 2017, new one just released 2023. Um, and again, we're just starting uh, to embark on the assessment process to see what impact that will have um, across the board in relation to our risk management process, both from a corporate and from a service and care provision. So a lot of activity going on here. Um, and certainly for ourselves, as I said, we're, we're looking at updating all of our templates that relate to it, um, and also a number of training programs that are going to be coming down the line so that we can all get up to speed. It seems like, and I know Lisa, you're part of it every day, there's a new thing coming down the line and we just write it to our very, 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 very long list, um, but we're working through them. Um, but it's just to make you aware of all of those things and, and to make sure that they're at the forefront of your mind. And we're going to look at some of the findings now that Lisa is going to bring through uh, from, from some of the recent HICWA inspection reports that are released. And I would expect to see, obviously, as we move forward in the next couple of weeks and months, 
the findings will start to focus around some of these new guidance and requirements that are being uh, that we, we talked about this morning. OK, Lisa, back to you. Uh, great. Thank you, Una. Um, lots of new updates there to keep us all busy anyway. Um, so move on to the focus then of this morning's webinar. So we did take 25 randomly selected HICWA inspection reports, and these inspections were completed between November 2022 and January 2023, so they're quite recent. And we identified the key areas of interest and the types of findings that came up under the regulations. And so just before we cut into the findings that came up, I just wanted to look briefly at these tables that we pulled together just to flag up some of the key areas that were not compliant. So this is the capacity and capability dimension, and there's a lot of information here, but I just want to draw your attention to governance and management. So we can see that of the 25 sample reports, reports that we looked at, 20, all 25 were inspected against governance and management. So if the inspectors come, you can be sure they're going to to be looking at your governance and management and then if you look across of those 25 so 48 percent of those were not compliant so that's a very significant number nearly 50 percent not compliant in governance and management and then if we move on to the quality and safety dimension, so straight away we can see that fire precautions had high risk, not compliant red findings. Uh, this is no surprise, it comes up every time that we do this report. And you can see 69% of the services were not compliant against the fire precautions regulation. So again, very significant numbers there. And then another one I just want to draw your attention to is residence rights. So of the 25 reports that we looked at, 22 of those were inspected against residence rights. So that's nearly all of the services. And then 32% of those were not compliant. So this is definitely going to be a focus of um, HICWAS uh, coming up, residence rights. Um, okay, so I'll move on and look at the findings that came up under this, some of the regulations. So under capacity and capability, and no surprise, we're going to start with governance and management. So 48% not compliant of the 25, all 25 assessed. So inspectors found that the organisational structure in the residential centre on the day of the inspection did not provide assurance that there was a clearly defined management structure with clear lines of authority and accountability. And there was no effective deputising arrangements in place. So when the PIC wasn't there, the inspectors could not access the information that they needed. So this just showed inspectors that the governance structure was not robust enough. It's not sufficient just to have one person, the PIC, driving all of the processes. If the PIC is not available, there still needs to be a sufficient management structure in place. Um, moving on then, so only one staff meeting had taken place since the last inspection and there was an action plan, but it was not time bound with no person identified with responsibility for the actions. So you'll see that action plans come up quite a bit in some of the findings and um, it needs to be documented who is taking responsibility for the actions. Otherwise, there's no proof or accountability to assure that all that work is going to be done. Um, so a number of areas from a previous inspection had been addressed but not sustained or had not even been addressed to date. Risks from the last infect 
inspection were ident not identified and managed within the risk register and the risk register was not updated regarding a new extension. So HICWA need to see that risk register being updated frequently and that the risks on it are relevant, that management are aware of them and that something is being put in place to mitigate those risks. These next few findings are in relation to audits. So audits have been a key problem in relation to governance and management that keep coming up. Um, audit practices are seen not to be sufficiently robust. So we'll take a look now at what HICWA found. So the quality assurance system did not ensure that the quality and safety of the service was effectively monitored. And the residential centre had medication management audits and they're being completed regularly with a high level of compliance, but the risks that inspectors found on the day of the inspection were not recognised. So the audits were being done, but it's about the quality of these audits that were not capturing the non-compliances that HICWA found when they came on site. And the auditing process, process was not being used effectively to drive quality improvement. So audits were not always completed and did not always have the associated action plans when deficits were identified. So this one's about the follow-up and the closeout of the audits. So again, it needs to be an action plan with a person responsible. So we really have to ensure that the audits we're completing are sufficiently effective at picking up the non-compliances. So if we find the problems before HICWA does, then you can say, yes, I know, but look at what we're doing to improve on this. And we can be proactive about identifying the problems within our service. Um, so I'll move on then. Regulation 21 records, so 55% not compliant of the 11 assess, um, which is very high not compliant findings. So not all records were stored in a safe and secure manner. So the big focus here is on GDPR and ensuring that anything but information about residents or staff is stored securely. So files for residents and staff were stored in a general storeroom that was in regular use. Covers were not on the boxes of residents and staff files and a number of people had access to that storeroom. And daily records for residents were stored inside the front door of the residential centre on open shelving. So really anyone would be able to access that information. Um, these findings then are in relation to staff files. So this is another one that always comes up. There's always gaps in something. So there are gaps in the employment history. The correct form of personal identification was not available. Induction records were not recorded for new staff as the PIC did said they did that verbally. So that's not sufficient, it needs to be recorded. And three staff files did not contain guard of vetting disclosure. The guard of vetting that comes up the whole time, re, like all the staff, they really need to have their guard of vetting disclosure. And we know all the information that's required by the regulations. It's just a matter of making sure that that information is there and that it's available as well when inspectors come on site. So regulation 16 then, staff training and development, 21% not compliant of the 19 that were assessed, the 19 of 25 assessed against this regulation. Sorry. So the big finding here every time is in relation to mandatory training records. Um, it's one of the most frequent things that comes up. Um, so inspectors found gaps in safeguarding, responsive behaviour, fire safety, restrictive practice, CPR and manual handling training. 
Um, so there and this next finding, there was an online training program for staff. However, there was minimal oversight at the completion of this training. And on the day of the inspection, the management team were unaware if some staff training had been completed. So it's important that management know where the gaps in staff training are and that management are being proactive to identify these gaps. So while staff have received appropriate training, staff supervision was not sufficient to ensure that the staff training was being implemented in practice. So staff did not have the appropriate required level of knowledge to assure them that residents were receiving a high standard of care. So it's not enough for staff just to complete the mandatory training. They need to be implementing it in their everyday practice. And it's worth noting here that the training gaps were in IPC, medication management, fire, dementia care, risk management and residents' rights. So these services are actually being hit with a double non-compliance once here under staff training and development and then again under the relevant rec regulation. So, for example, infection control. So it's just one to watch that it could be hit with a double, a double non-compliance on that. Um, written policies and procedures, then 20% not compliant and 15 were of the 25 were assessed against this one. So all written policies and procedures were not available to staff on the day of the inspection. Policies required by schedule five were not in place. Several policies were out of date. And while appropriate policies were in place, they were not implemented. So you can have the best policies in the world on paper, but unless they're reflective of the practice on the ground, they're not going to be sufficient. Uh, regulation 31 then, notification of incidents. So 20% not compliant here of 15 assessed against this regulation. So very high not compliance here, notification of incidents. So the residential centre had not notified the chief inspector of a safeguarding incident, notification of restrictive medicines that had been used and restrictions on residents access within the centre had not been notified and in the quarterly notifications. So and then three incidents pertaining to an allegation of abuse were not notified to the chief inspector within the required timeframes. Um, so we'll move on then to the quality and safety dimension and we'll start with regulation 28 fire precautions because of the numerous not compliant findings that were found here. So 69% of the 19 services that were assessed against this regulation were not compliant. So very, very um, high number of not compliant services here. And uh, we'll just pull out a few of the red risks, so just the high risk findings here. So there were inadequate storage facilities and inappropriate storage practices in high risk areas. So storage comes up all the time. Um, and you can see here that they identified storage in the attic space and the gas boiler room as being fire hazards. And then the storage in the stairwells actually blocked the fire escape routes as well, okay? And the smoking area in the residential center required attention. So there were no fire extinguishers in close proximity and there were items of inappropriate furniture that had visible burn marks. 
the fire doors to the kitchen only had FD30 fire doors. So that's not adequate for a high risk area. And we could see as well that laundry, it came up as well that laundry chutes needed FD30 doors as well. That came up. Um, some external means of escape were unsuitable. So there were parked cars and an entry canopy obstructing the fire exits. And some external routes had steps which would not be suitable for non-ambulant residents in the event of a fire. And the floor plans displayed to assist evacuation did not contain correct information. The fire action notices in the centre indicated the location of the fire assembly point was actually to the front. But when the inspectors spoke with staff, they said that the fire assembly point was to the rear of the building. So the notices being displayed were not reflective of staff practices, and this could cause confusion and delays in event of a fire. And um, this next one is interesting. So there were fire evacuation drills were being undertaken and one record said that the evacuation of the largest compartment said that it took seven minutes to evacuate nine residents with nighttime staffing levels however there were no further records to demonstrate that this had been repeated to reduce the time and to inform further improvement so it's not enough just to do the fire evacuation drills we need to be showing that we're striving for continuous improvement, trying to reduce that time down and make the process more efficient then as well. Okay, so it's just one to watch. Regulation 17 premises. So 43% not compliant of the 21 assessed against premises. So very high not compliant findings in premises. We see this every time. And um, so some examples then of what they found when they went on site. So floor coverings were worn and uneven, which was an infection control risk because it couldn't be cleaned and the tripping hazards for residents. And the wall surfaces were scuffed and had paint missing. Um, floor covering and wall surfaces, it comes up so, so often. HICWA frequently have findings on it, okay? So it's just one to watch. Um, lighting in some rooms was not working. There was inadequate ventilation in a sluice room and a malodor was evident. Uh, the seating in the resident sensory room was of a very low level and did not promote residents' independence or meet residents' needs for seating at a higher level. So that's an interesting one about the seating, okay? In the storerooms, there was storage on the ground and it was not suitably stored on shelving. And weekly temperature checks were being completed, but there was no evidence of these checks um, made available to inspectors. And inspectors found that when they went into one sit sit sitting room, it was cooler than the rest of the residential centre and it was not comfortable for residents. OK, so it's another one to be aware of. Regulation 27, infection control. 33% not compliant of the 18 assessed. So this is a, a big non-compliance for infection control. Um, there were no guidelines available on the care of residents colonized with multi-drug resistant organisms, including CPE and VRE. And staff were unaware of which residents had multi-drug resistant organisms. So this meant that inappropriate precautions may not have been in place when caring for these residents. So there's a big focus here on multi-drug resistant organisms. Uh, it came up in a few of the reports that we looked at. 
Um, I guess up until now, maybe Hick, we're looking specifically at COVID-19, but our IPC processes really need to be robust enough to deal with an outbreak of any infection and manage residents then who have multi-drug resistant organisms, um, manage them appropriately. Um, the registered provider had not nominated an IPC link practitioner to increase awareness and motivate their colleagues to improve IPC practices. So every residential home needs to have a minimum of one designated IPC link practitioner on site with protected time to promote IPC. So every centre needs one. Cleaning chemicals and buckets were prepared within the sluice room, so this could increase the risk of cross-contamination. The sharp spin did not have the temporary closer mechanism engaged when it was not in use, and it was not signed when it was opened and assembled. And storage racks for storing continence equipment to dry were positioned directly above the hand washing sink. So if staff had come along to wash their hands, there was a risk of cross-contamination from the drip of residual liquids. So maybe it might be worth taking a look at the sluice room and seeing what way it's laid out that it's appropriate. Moving on then to regulation nine residence rights. 32% uh, not compliant of the 22 assessed. And as we were saying earlier, we do expect this to be a big focus of HICWA going forward with all the new developments Una spoke of previously. So some of the not compliant findings. So there were long periods of resident inactivity in the morning time um, as staff were busy providing care to other residents. Some residents did not have regular opportunities to participate in meaningful activities that met their interests and capabilities. So they were, so many of the residents were unable to engage in group activities but, and one-to-one -one activities provided were limited. So group activities were being provided, but those other residents who, could, who that didn't suit, suit their needs uh, weren't getting one-to-one -one activities. And social activities and pods continued. And um, this should be well gone at this stage. Um, so residents were divided into two groups. Each group remained in their bedroom on alternate days. And there was no evidence that the IPC measures, which restricted the liberty of residents, had been balanced against a robust ethical justification. So if, if measures like these are in place, there needs to be a, a risk assessment and ethical justification about why it's there, why it's necessary. So residents' right to exercise their choice uh, to access a safe outdoor area as they wished was not facilitated as external doors were key code locked. And there was no evidence that issues raised at residence meetings were addressed either through the complaints process or another avenue. So residents raised issues about laundry, but there was nothing to show that this was being followed up on and it remained an issue for three consecutive meetings. And then 14 of 28 residents in one unit were in bed by 5.20. So this didn't offer residents a choice of their bedtime. And um, so really residents' rights is one to watch. Um, these findings are coming up so frequently. Um, it's going to be it's going to be a big one to watch going forward. Yeah, I, just to, to jump in there, I suppose two things that jump out at me there uh, from those findings, Lisa, and it's something that, as, as you say, we have seen time and time again. 
is particularly, I suppose, the historical process now where, you know, restrictive requirements were implemented as was necessary during COVID and, in, and, and they have lingered on past really their sell by date in relation to it. Um, uh, but it can become the way that we do our activities on a day to day basis because they were in place for so long. But it is time now to step back from those processes and really consider uh, the necessity of their application uh, and really look at uh, from residence rights perspective, whether there is the benefit remains of having those restrictions in place or are we in a position now to open it up and ensure that the liberty of the residents is, is fully respected. And I think, as you say, this is something that's going to become a bigger focus and that advocacy that we've talked about already, certainly a key element that's going to support that process um, in, in relation to it. So um, I think that's something that we certainly have to keep a, a, an eye on also. Yeah, it's going to be a, a big a big focus of HICWA coming up based on all the, all the guidance being released. Um, so regulation 29 then medicines and pharmaceutical services so 30% not compliant of the 10 assessed against this regulation so that's very high non-compliance again 30% of the services that were inspected against it had not compliant findings so some of the findings then that HICWA found so transcribed medicine staff had transcribed medicines where there was no prescription records signed by the medical practitioner so therefore nurses were administering medications without a valid prescription. Uh, PRN medications did not have a maximum dose recorded and the allergy status was not recorded in all of the records. That's all for that one. Regulation 5, individual assessment and care plan, so 29% not compliant of the services inspected against this regulation, so very high as well. So some residents' care plans were not individualized. So some care plans had details related to diabetes or schizophrenia, even though these were not on the resident's diagnosis. Care plans referred to a female resident as he or a male resident as she. And the COVID-19 care plan did not consider a resident that smoked and it did not consider this when planning their precautions and isolation. And um, so it's just obvious from these care plans that they're not person-centered and not specific to the individual resident. Um, one resident's documentation did not have their spirituality or end-of-life care plan in place even though the resident had significant medical history and was in a position to fully engage in the decision-making process. So we really need to be proactive about encouraging residents to engage in the advanced care planning process. And the decision support service will have a role in this as well. They have guidance published on their website, so it's, it's one to watch. Um, so we did complete quite a detailed summary of the 25 HICWA inspection reports. Um, we can only give a brief overview of some of the findings this morning, uh, but I know Rosemary will make the full report uh, available to you following this morning's webinar. And please feel free to circulate it to anyone within your organisation for any areas that may be of interest to them. 
And just to flag up to you that HCI Care Tools is available. It's an online store where you can purchase evidence-based documentation. It has policies and procedures, care plans, forms, templates, and everything you could need in relation to the regulation standards and guidance. And Rosemary has kindly detailed that there's a coupon code for 10% off documents mm. purchased <laughs> before the 5th of May. Um, so that's a great deal. <laughs> Um, you can also contact info at hci.care and please do make contact with us if you have any queries about anything. We're more than happy to chat with you about, about it. Okay. And that's everything then. Thank you, well everyone. Done, Thank yeah. you very much for all of that. And I know before any of you ask, this wonderful webinar will also be made available on all of our social media channels. Rosemary will ensure that that gets up um, in the near future. Uh, as in today, probably, um, and make sure that you circulate it to any of your uh, colleagues that may be interested in some of the findings um, that uh, Lisa highlighted today. I mean, it's an ongoing piece of work. It takes it takes a significant bit of time to do this work, but it is of value where we can see the continuous trends. And I know those of you who have attended these sessions before, many cases we've seen these before, but you know, it it bears repeating that it is the same things that are coming through on a regular basis. So um, uh, forearmed is forearmed, it's no forewarned is forearmed, one of them anyway. <laughs> so you have the information there. So it's really a case of uh, having a look at it against your own service and seeing if you can implement uh, the controls required to ensure um, that, that you can address them to HICWA's uh, pleasure in relation to that, that they're happy with, with the, the requirements that you have in place. Anything else, Rosemary, we're happy with that. Um, I think Rosemary will uh, circulate uh, a PDF of the slides to all of the attendees this morning. Yeah. Um, and as I said, the, the full uh, webinar will be made available on the social channel. So thank you very much for giving of your time this morning. We very much appreciate it. And please God, we'll be back again, not too long um, with another webinar series um, for your assistance.